just in the nick of time for 2013. Vegcast. It's Vegcast 113. Vegcast. A full menu from first to last. Vegcast. Yes, it is another full menu here with Vegcast 113. And we are back with you after a kind of a changeover in our home audio setup. But we have now got that squared away and have done an interview that we've been looking forward to for a while. This is with Khan Slobochnikov, who is the author of Chasing Dr. Doolittle, Learning the Language of Animals. And he's got a lot of fascinating things to say about that and a lot of actual experience. Uh, you may have heard of his work in studying uh, the calls of prairie dogs and uh, how he discovered that uh, they have a certain uh, syntax and uh, kind of vocabulary that they use that is very uh, similar to what we would consider to be language. And uh, so this raises a lot of questions that we're going to get into. We also are going to hear a song uh, from Marlene Sosby uh, called Vegan Life that I think that you will all enjoy. And we will have a science fact on a major investigation into the beef industry and some of the findings uh, about antibiotic overuse in farmed animals. So that's all coming up very shortly. I invite you to sit back, relax, and crank it up as we deliver to you this 113th Veg Okay, VegCast is sponsored by Tofurky. Making delicious, innovative, and affordable meat alternatives from non-GMO organic soy since 1980. And as I said, this is an interview uh, I've been looking forward to for a while. I had to wait until the book actually came out. And uh, then after that, I had did this audio thing I was going through. Uh, as you can hear, we now have a way to record phone calls, audio in the home, and other things, and uh, transmit it to you. Uh, so we now are putting that out in VegCast 113, uh, although this came up at Summerfest when I was talking with Jonathan Balcom, uh, whom you will remember from previous VegCasts. Uh, we, have, uh, we were talking about uh, animal language, and he brought up this book and uh, brought up the guy that studied the prairie dogs, which I've read about in his work and uh, a couple of other sources. And so it turns out that Khan Slobochnikov has written up a book of not only his experiences, but pulling together some other examples of uh, animal communication, which he says we should take seriously as language. And of course, if we're taking animal language seriously, do we then take animal interests seriously? And that's uh, one of the topics that we are going to get into right now as we chat with Khan Slobochnikov. Okay, right now on VegCast, we are pleased to be speaking with Khan Slobochnikov, the author of Chasing Dr. Doolittle. This is a new book out from St. Martin's Press, and uh, we're going to talk about it today. Khan, welcome to VegCast. Hi, Ben. Howdy, and uh, thanks for being on the program. And uh, this book uh, is something that uh, is kind of a culmination of... Uh, years of research that you've done on certain animals as well as uh, you've kind of pulled in research from other scientists, biologists, animal behaviorists, and so forth. 
And uh, the basic concept, if I understand it, is that uh, there's there's more to animal communication and animal language than most people are aware of or most people credit animals for. And I, I think we should start with uh, kind of the backbone of this is you argue for uh, kind of a new biological aspect uh, to uh, at least mammal species that goes along with other biological systems called the discourse system. Can you just briefly explain uh, what you mean by the discourse system? Sure. Let me just say, following up on what you said, yeah. that for a long time, people have assumed that we were the only ones with language. We were the only ones capable of language. We were the only ones capable of understanding language. And all other animals communicated, but they didn't have language. And their communication was more like a stimulus response. You know, you push a yellow button and you get this kind of thing. You push a green button and you get a different kind of response. And all of that was programmed by instinct. In the book, I show that this isn't so that many animals are capable of what we would call language. They're capable of making decisions. They're capable of providing information about the world around them. They're capable of uh, sometimes deceiving other animals. They're capable of manipulating other animals. And one of the things that has been a stumbling block for our understanding of language is that uh, we have not really understood how language can come about. In humans, we know that language is a, a series of sounds that we make, but how exactly did that come about? And there's a whole host of theories about how this came about. But what I tried to do is I tried to look at this from a biological evolutionary perspective. In other words, if you have language, you don't have just the sounds that are produced. You have a, a whole system of morphology and physiology that goes into the production of the sounds, goes into the interpretation of the sounds, goes into the motor responses that animals make in response to the sounds. And so I put together this discourse theory as a way of linking all of the morphology and physiology and sound production into one system, which I say is comparable to organ systems like the cardiovascular system, like the hormonal system, and that all of these structures combined are what essentially produce language and allow animals to use language. And as such, this is something that is subject to evolutionary pressures and not just something that just happened. Mm -hmm. If you look at, at animals across the board, there's a lot of animals, not just mammals, but uh, a lot of insects, for example, a lot of other animals have these morphological and physiological systems that are specialized for communication that allow them to make these kinds of decisions, that allow them to make these kinds of choices to convey very sophisticated information to other animals about the world around them. Great. Well, that's uh, that kind of gets right to the the heart of it. Um, I did say mammals because I couldn't remember what which of the systems biological systems we have, uh, like the endocrine system, gastrointestinal, are shared all the way down the board. But certainly your discourse system uh, seems to be more uh, far ranging than some of the biological things that are specific to 
kind of our close family of animals. Um, and I, I wonder, one of the, the main things that you get at early on is uh, how our, uh, what, what I might call human supremacy, our, our notion of ourselves as this unique kind of uh, being has impeded our understanding, has actually gotten in the way of our being able to hypothesize correctly and, and test correctly to find things that may uh, actually be out there. Uh, and you, you start with, uh, I think, a really uh, powerful anecdote about uh, your early life and uh, what happened to you in school as a, kind of a foreign national moving to the United States and having to learn English. Can you just give us, uh, our listeners, a, a brief uh, summary of that? Because I think it's, it's, a, it's a great analogy that you make out of that. Sure. Uh, my first language that I learned to speak was Russian. And uh, by the time that I was five, I was fluent in Russian, and my parents moved to the United States, where I was immediately put into uh, a school, into, then they called it a grammar school, and I can't remember, I think it was about the first grade or so, and I didn't speak a word of English. I had no idea what was going on, and at that time, people were not really as sensitive as perhaps they are now to multicultural differences and to people speaking different languages. And so because I couldn't understand, I was punished for not doing the right things. The teacher would say something to me and I would have no clue what was going on and the teacher would come and punish me for not doing what she said I was supposed to do. And as I was starting to learn English, I was mentally translating from Russian to English and from English into Russian. And this made me hesitate in what I was saying. So the teacher and uh, child psychologist decided that I must be a latent stutter. So I was put into a class for stutterers and I learned how to take a deep breath when I couldn't think of the word and learned how to snap my fingers when the word wouldn't come. And I tried to explain to them that it's not that I stuttered. I couldn't think of the word because I didn't know the word. But they were totally unresponsive to this because the paradigm of the time said that if somebody hesitated, if somebody made mistakes in their language, they must be a stutterer. And so, therefore, we go to a stuttering class. And so I suffered through this for about two years until finally my pediatrician, who was well-known in San Francisco social circles, wrote a letter to the school and said that he knows that I don't stutter, and if I don't get out of that stuttering class, then he's going to take it up with the school board personally, who he happens to know all of the school board. And so I was immediately taken out of the class. But that showed me that paradigms are really important, and people can have the wrong paradigm and apply it to situations that are inappropriate because they think that they're being right, but it's actually the wrong paradigm. And that's where I think we are now with animals, that uh, people have the wrong paradigm assuming that animals can't have language. And so therefore they don't bother to look for actual examples of language. And as I show in my book, Chasing Dr. Doolittle, we have abundant examples of animal language in the scientific literature and in anecdotal accounts, but we tend not to 
accept that because our paradigm still is we're the only ones with language and no other animal can have language. Right, and I, uh, I would like to get into some of the uh, accounts that you, you go through. There's, there's a lot of them, far more than we can get to here, but of course you're very well known for your work with prairie dogs, and uh, I would like to just talk some about what it was with that particular study that uh, made you say, you know, this really is language. Uh, but I, I would like to point out, just taking off from the, the paradigm conversation, that uh, when I, uh, I've been doing a lot of research into the general uh, issue of animal language and animal communication, and I found one book that was, uh, I forget what the title of was, it was trying to basically argue against the whole concept, and so it, they had cited very briefly your work with uh, prairie dogs and said you know this is one guy he's got this theory but uh, you know other people haven't done this same work so uh, we can't really accept this as uh, you know an actual scientific fact whereas the same person in making other arguments would consistently just pick one <laughs> one singular study from one person and say you see how this proves what I'm saying and I, I think scientists uh, sometimes have that habit of, of, of applying a different standard of, of evidence depending on whether they think that it proves or disproves what they're trying to say. I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but if you could, uh, if you could speak uh, briefly on the whole, uh, for people who aren't familiar with it, the, the stuff that you observed in prairie dogs. Sure. With prairie dogs, I started out being interested in their communication system. And at that time, people knew that prairie dogs had alarm calls that they give to different predators. And uh, there was some suggestion that maybe prairie dogs might have two different kinds of alarm calls, one for terrestrial predators like coyotes and one for aerial predators like hawks. And so I thought it would be cool to see if prairie dogs actually had that. So I started recording their vocalizations to terrestrial and aerial predators and found that the situation was much more complicated than that. And ultimately, through 25 years' worth of scientific experiments where we set up experiments, we carefully collected data, we videotaped uh, and audiotaped the responses of prairie dogs and of their predators. We analyzed all of the data statistically in the lab. What we found was that prairie dogs have an incredibly sophisticated language. They have uh, words for different predators. So for example, they have a word for a coyote, they have a word for a hawk, they have a word for a badger, they have a word for a dog, they have a word for a human. Within that, they can describe the size and shape and color of the predators. So for a human, they can describe the size and shape of the human, they can describe the color of clothes that the human is wearing, they can describe whether the person has a gun and is dangerous or doesn't have a gun and is dangerous, they can describe the speed of travel. And they can make up new words about objects that they've never seen before. So all of this together fits into the general category of criteria that linguists have said you have to have demonstrated in animals before we accept that they have a language. And by now, I've demonstrated that they have all of those. So that's why I'm comfortable saying that prairie dogs actually do have a language. 
Now, to go back to your point about selective scientists, not all scientists like this viewpoint for a variety of reasons, partially maybe because it makes us seem less special in their minds and less unique. And so, yes, uh, people have selectively cited some evidence based on single examples, whereas I, by now, have published around 35 different papers in peer-reviewed scientific journals showing all of this diversity of stuff that I was talking about. And people, some scientists still don't want to publish this or, or don't want to cite this. But increasingly, the evidence is showing that more and more people, particularly as more younger people come into the scientific field, that they're much more accepting of this idea than some of the older people. Well, let me just ask, in terms of uh, uh, animals interacting with other enemies, I mean, alarm calls, for example, uh, that's something that we can kind of figure out what the prairie dogs are talking about because we can see what the external stimulus is, and uh, these tend to have to do with uh, other animal, other kinds of animals, and there are some studies showing that uh, some animals listen to other animals, other kinds of animals' alarm calls, and use those as uh, kind of an expanded warning system. And I'm, I'm just wondering, if do you have any comment or hypothesis about the degree to which different species of animals have a comprehension of other species of animals' language or of other species of animals' communication uh, in terms of how that is comparable with ours? Well, uh, we are just scratching the surface of this. And as you say, there are animals that can understand the alarm calls of other animals. For example, in Africa, starlings can understand the alarm calls of zebras. Uh, and uh, some monkey species can understand the alarm calls of other monkey species and respond appropriately. So we're just scratching the surface. But it seems likely that to a lesser or greater extent, animal species are going to know some of the language of other species that are in their own general environment. And we have this evidence, for example, with our domestic dogs. We know that many dogs can understand our words so that dog owners, for example, sometimes have to spell W-A-L-K so that their dog doesn't get excited. And then eventually the dog learns what W-A-L-K means. It means walk. And the dog still gets excited. And we know from examples that have been studied by scientists that there's a dog called Chaser, a border collie, that knows upwards of a 1,000 words in English. There's another border collie called Rico in Germany who knows upwards of, of about 200 words in German. So we know that animals can learn our language. And by extension, you know, we are all connected evolutionarily. By extension, it's probable that other animals can learn the relevant things of other animals' language. So I wonder if, uh, do you think, I mean, returning to the title, Chasing Dr. Doolittle, Dr. Doolittle was a character who could not only understand animals' language, but he would converse with them. And we have certainly... Uh, outside of a, a domestic context or, uh, say, you know, situations like Alex the parrot or Coco the gorilla, we haven't really gotten to a point where a human can just go 
you know, to a wild animal and start conversing. Uh, do you think that as we study the patterns of animal language uh, that we may eventually get to a point where uh, we can reproduce those in a way <laughs> that we can actually make sense of the animals doing something other than just, you know, recording and playing back the sounds that they make to, to kind of trick them into, I mean, that's, that's not really, we're not really communicating with them in that sense. Uh, we're, we're just uh, kind of parroting, if you will. <laughs> uh, but it, do you think that we could take like elements of their language, put them together in order to say something new to them, say something meaningful to animals on behalf of humans? I think that this is actually something that is coming down the road fairly fast for us. One of the key things in my prairie dog work has been the context. You know, they make alarm calls within a defined context, and we know what that context is. If we can identify key contexts in other animal languages, that provides us with a Rosetta Stone for decoding what it is that the animals are saying. And to go back to my prairie dogs, I've been working with a computer scientist using artificial intelligence techniques to analyze some aspects of the language. And we've gotten to the point where we can record a particular vocalization, the computer can analyze it and tell us in English what that vocalization means. And by extension, we should be able to also say something in English, have the computer translated into prairie doggies and broadcast it to the prairie dogs so that it would be meaningful. So we now have the technology to build something like a microprocessor or a computer, maybe the size of a cell phone or a small recorder, where we could say something in English and if we knew enough about, say, dog language, the microprocessor could interpret this in dog language and conversely, if the dog says woof, the microprocessor could say, it's time to feed me now, in English. Right. And okay. I think well, far away from that. With dogs, I mean, that might be, you know, just the default. You just put that in for everything they say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, that, that that's fascinating. We're uh, about out of time here. Uh, but to, to wrap it up, of course, uh, this is for VegCast, and uh, I just want to, uh, to ask you for your kind of opinion on the the ramifications of of this uh, the way that our uh, the paradigm that you talk about and our contextualizing of animals uh, intellect as expressed by language well let me just say animals uh, uh, their sense of self as expressed by language we've uh, we've been consistent throughout human history and kind of downplaying that and I wonder, have we not also been consistent in just uh, kind of using that as a crutch to excuse uh, a, a dismissal of animal interests or a, a an insistence that animal interests are of infinitely lesser importance than our own if the two ever come into conflict? And do you see uh, some of this research as potentially overturning that and potentially uh, making people take animal interests uh, more seriously in addition to taking animal language seriously? Absolutely. So far, we know that animals, or at least some animals, are self-aware that they are capable of thought, which we thought once upon a time that if animals didn't have language, they couldn't think. Now we know that they both have language, 
and they can think they're self-aware. And this kind of thing I have found when I talk about my prairie dog stuff with people that they develop more of an empathy for these animals. And I think that this is true across the board, that once people realize that animals do talk to each other, that they can think that they're self-aware, that they're like us, not quantitatively different, qualitatively different, but they're very much like us, that they will have much more empathy for animals. And it's not like that animals can be treated as disposable test tubes. They are sentient, living, breathing beings that share a lot of qualities with us. And my hope is that we will cross that divide and start treating animals much more uh, kindly, much better as the sentient beings that they are. Okay, well, we can all hope for that. Uh, we're out of time now, but I appreciate your, uh, your joining us here to talk about Chasing Dr. Doolittle, which, uh, again, is uh, just out from St. Martin's Press. And uh, Kon Slobotchnikov, thanks again for uh, joining us on VegCast. Thank you, Vance.
is Vegan Life by Marlene Sosby, a 12-year vegan. Uh, she sang that all and performed all of uh, those instruments herself, self-produced uh, the song. She's uh, kind of a vegan dynamo out there. We wish her well. Marlene Sosby, one of uh, the artists that we play here on VegCast. We do uh, play vegan and vegetarian musicians. If you have uh, something that you want to hear heard played on VegCast, send it along. And uh, the song uh, not only is a fine piece of music in and of itself, but it helped us transition from an interview uh, on the facts of science to the science fact. Our science fact for VegCast 113. Researchers, drug overuse in cattle imperils human health. This is from the Charlotte Observer, and it's a uh, it's what you might call a wedge out of a big pie of a an investigation that the Kansas City Star did uh, into the beef industry, uh, which uh, is located uh, right around those parts. And there's a lot of different uh, stuff coming out of this. Uh, most of it is just a synthesis of stuff that was already released. So. Uh, this is going to be a, an exception to our standard rule that the science fact is one peer-reviewed scientific study. Since we talked about peer-reviewed science throughout the entire main interview, I just wanted uh, to pick one of these pieces that they did as pullouts from this investigation. And we will link to this story as well as to the whole Kansas City Star investigation so you can read up on the different aspects of that. But here's uh, just one piece of that, and this story goes, Two kids seriously injured in the Joplin, Missouri tornado in May 2011 showed up at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City suffering from antibiotic-resistant infections from dirt and debris blown into their wounds. Physicians tried different drugs, but at first nothing seemed to work. Blame the overuse of antibiotics in livestock, according to the doctors familiar with their cases. These kids had some really high-resistant bacteria that they clearly had not picked up in a hospital, said Jason Newland, director of the Children's Mercy's Antibiotic Stewardship Program. Newland and other doctors believe these infections are part of the price we are paying for a half-century of overusing antibiotics in cattle and other meat animals in the United States. Let's just stop there for a moment to note that that's a price that we are paying, we being humans, all of humanity uh, being endangered by antibiotic resistance, even if we uh, choose to pay for or to not pay for uh, the use of antibiotics in cattle and uh, in to pay for meat in and of itself. Uh, we still have to pay by having our threat, health threatened here. Uh, we are increasingly treating kids with antibiotic-resistant infections who were at the last antibiotic we could possibly use on them, Newland said. In the next 20 years, will we see antibiotics resistant to everything? A year-long investigation by the Kansas City Star found a multimillion-dollar-a-year pharmaceutical arms race in the beef industry is not just about curing sick cows. It's also about fattening cattle cheaply and quickly, driven in part by efforts to maximize profits. So once again, I'm just going to break here and point out that uh, this is all so that we can have cheap meat, so that the people actually buying the meat will have to pay less for it while continuing to uh, cause the rest of us to pay that price 
of our endangered health. Story continues today. There is overwhelming evidence that non-therapeutic use of antibiotics in food animals contributes to antibiotic resistance, according to Stuart Levy, a world-renowned expert who co-authored a study last year at Tufts University. The World Health Organization also is worried, warning that the speed at which antibiotics are becoming ineffective outpaces the development of replacement drugs. One of the most powerful measures globally to prevent antimicrobial resistance has been the ban of the use of antibiotics as growth promoters in livestock in the 27 European Union countries since 2006, the WHO said last year. Numerous strains of antibiotic-resistant bacteria have already begun cropping up. Earlier this year, a lab in Arizona discovered a strain of antibiotic-resistant MRSA in retail meat. MRSA, a staph infection, can cause abscesses and lesions. The lab, the Translation Genomics Research Institute, published a study that showed that bacteria jumped from humans to livestock and back. Our findings underscore the potential public health risks of widespread antibiotic use in food animal production study noted. And uh, we're going to leave that there without further comment. I think that we've made the point about uh, the amount that we're paying. But again, this is just part of a, uh, a series of kind of pullouts from this investigation. And again, you can find the link to that in the VegCast show notes under the heading of the Science Fact. Well, VegCast 113 is just about done and out of here. But before we go, I wanted to point you to an Internet meme that uh, I had sent to me and then uh, I saw it on Facebook. And somebody actually wrote to me saying, hey, could you mention this on VegCast? Now, it's a purely visual thing. It's an infographic. But uh, I'm going to have a link in the show notes for you if you want to go check that out. Uh, it's called Got Milk? You Don't Need It, and it goes through facts and uh, figures, literally, uh, about the milk industry and human consumption of milk that may make some people think, again, it's something worth uh, checking out if you are a vegetarian or vegan and uh, perhaps sending on to other people. And in the meantime, we are going to send ourselves out there into 2013 with this uh, last VegCast of 2012. Uh, we will be a little more uh, regular monthly podcast in 2013, I would uh, warrant. And until that time, well, have a great new year, and we are out of here. Yes, that is VegCast 113. I want to thank Khan Slobotnikov for talking with us about his book, Chasing Dr. Doolittle. I want to thank Marlene Sosby for giving us permission to play vegan life on VegCast. I want to thank our sponsor, Tofurky, making delicious, innovative, and affordable meat alternatives from non-GMO organic soy since 1980. And I want to thank you, the VegCast listener, and hopefully subscriber. You can subscribe at veganfeed.com. We'll see you in January. And until then, get out there and live like you mean it. VegCast.